Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Power Test, the political podcast that asks what Labour should do to win and change Britain for the better. I'm Aisha Hazarika. And I'm Sam Friedman. And today we ask what role the state would play in Labour's economic plan. Just how active should they be in trying to shape the economy? Shortly, we'll be joined by the former chief economist at the Cabinet Office under Gordon Brown, Jonathan Portes, and the chief economist at the Institute for Government, Gemma Tetlow. Before we get to the sort of the main topic today, I mean, it's been a bit of a quiet week in politics. I'm not sure what we're going to talk about. I mean, nothing really has happened. Very really. sleepy week. Um, Very. Okay, let's go back to the beginning, begin? which just feels like it was a long time ago. Let's go back to the mother of all comebacks, David Cameron. No one saw that coming. No one saw it coming, but actually once it's happened, you, see, you, you can see the political strategy very quickly, which is, you know, they've looked at polling, which we can all see, which shows that they are in real, real trouble in some pretty traditional safe Tory seats in the southeast. Um, and they've decided that kind of those red wall seats that Labour, that Labour lost in 2019, Labour are going to win back almost regardless at this point, And they need to save Surrey from going the same way um, to save Michael Gove and, yeah literally I mean it is you know save Surrey save Oxfordshire save Hertfordshire and to do that bring back someone who you know is popular with that kind of 2010-2015 Tory voter who the party have sort of alienated by, by by going for Brexit and by being you know more aggressive on, on things like the Rwanda policy and so on so you can see the political strategy and I think it's a it's not a stupid political strategy given where they are like it's a very limited strategy it's not going to win them the election it might help them at the margins but you know if you're a Lib Dem strategist do you want a cabinet with Suella Braverman in or David Cameron in you want one with Suella Braverman in that's much easier for you to attack so and you can see the logic I I agree with a lot of that. I mean, the first thing I will say, fair play to Team Rishi for managing to keep this a secret. They're very good at doing that. They don't leak very much. You and I, but it's so hard to keep things Mm. secret in, in, in government. So, you know, it was a genuine 
jaw on the floor yeah, moment. It was, a proper tea. it was a bit like, you know, the kind of Bobby Ewing back in the mm. shower or my favourite um, comeback moment, Jackie Stallone appearing mm. in Celebrity Big mm-hmm. Brother. Uh, that one, not, not a reference I get. I'm going to have to level with you. <laughs> it's good. I'll send you okay. the gif. It's very, very good. No, I mean, look, there's there's a couple of ways of looking at this. And of course, you know, if you're on the left, you're going to say that anybody that Sunak brings in is, you know, the, the spawn of the devil, etc. Et and obviously, Cameron, you know, you can, there's lots of arguments of course, against him as a political figure. Austerity, you exactly. Brexit, Greensill, mm. China. Th- there's a lot. The Shepherd's Hut. Like, there's a lot. Yeah. You He's can, still, however, the most popular Tory p- politician of the last 15 absolutely. years, which says a lot about the other Tory politicians. And, but. and you know, I mean, it's clearly Rishi Sunak, you know, waving the white flag going, we, we, we've run out of, of, of sane people. But... It, it, to be fair to him, I think it was a strong choice because when you are confronted, as you say, with the sort of Lee Anderson, Suella Bravamans, at this point, I think it looks quite good for him to say, do you know what? I am actually for once making a strong choice mm. and I'm not going to um, be scared of the lunatics in my party. Mm. And I'm actually bringing back somebody who, as you said, a very, you know, arguably, you know, a more sensible person, very popular with that wing. I mean, also, we've had quite a few conversations, you and me, Sam, and I've had this with other people about how there's been no effort for the moderates to sort of fight back in, mm. in any way. Not that, and I know, some people listening will be screaming, he's not a moderate, austerity, austerity. I get that. But in terms of compared to Suella Braverman, he's a moderate. Yeah, I mean, Paul so, Potts a moderate compared to Suella Well, Braverman, everyone's yeah. a sort of, you know, a moderate. But that's where the the Tory party has been going, right? Mm. You know, you've had the kind of the worst elements of UKIP at the highest parts of government. I mean, I thought it was fascinating to see those slightly like creepy messages saying daddy's home. Well, I, the Tory party <laughs> have this weird psychoanalytic they issue. They, they all call Theresa May mummy yeah, when they, she was they're popular. Just deeply, they're something very, it's very wrong. Very, 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 I think it's boarding school. It does of this course it is. Of course it is. But it just it slightly <laughs> did make me laugh. Daddy's home. Let's just hope he doesn't forget you in the pub. But I think for, for, for Sunak, it's a bold move. We're not talking about Suella Bravman. She looks like an incredibly small, weird, mad fringe figure, mm. although she may well come back and lead the Tory party soon, um, dot, mm. dot, dot. And let's be honest as well. It's not a bad position for David Cameron to have now on the world stage when you have got Ukraine, you've got this Middle East conflict, geopolitics is incredibly important again. And of course, when you bring in David Cameron, he doesn't just come alone. He will have, that, of course, means you're bringing back George Osborne as a strategist yeah. into the heart of. And, and if you're Sunak, you're looking down the barrel of a horrendous wipeout the next general election. Why not bring back your most successful well, it, it, political it's double act in real, recent time? A real mirror to what happened with the Labour at the end. You know, when everything else had gone wrong, what did they do? They brought back Peter Manderson, yep. they brought back Alistair Campbell. Uh, Tony Blair wasn't quite welcome in Gordon Brown's number ten, but pretty much everyone else was back. You know, you bring the old team back together and and that and you get them to minimise the defeat. And that's essentially what's happening this time. You know, Rupert Harrison's now a candidate who worked for George Osborne. He's in, you know, he's qu- quite close to Sunak. You got Cameron back. You know, Laura Trott, who was a Cameroneer, a spad, is now in the cabinet. You bring the old team back and you try and get them to minimise the damage after everything's gone wrong. Yeah. I suppose the converse of of this is that. You know, the right of the party have now gone completely tonto in response. So Suella Brahman wrote a completely illogical letter of, of fury in sort of to Rishi Sunak in which she argued that he had no public mandate unless he accepted her secret deal 
which the public had never seen, um, which may yeah, made no sense at all. But no was, mandate unless you do everything I, I say. say that wasn't in the manifesto. She, 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 but, she, but nevertheless, it was furious. She has a group, you know, not a huge group, but she has a group uh, of supporters in the Tory party. We had the Supreme Court saying that the Rwanda deportations were illegal. They couldn't go ahead. The government can't go ahead with them, which has meant they've all kicked off again. You know, you've had Leigh Anderson who is still you know, deputy chair of the Tory party, saying we should break the law and send planes anyway, regardless of what the courts say. Which, can, I, we just, can we just stop for a minute and mm. just pause on that? Which is such a brilliant reflection on show me you know nothing about law, you yes. know, in terms of what has just happened at the Supreme Court. And then you have the deputy chair of the Tory party saying, oh, let's just ignore what who are these yeah. people anyway. And look, what the Tories are right about, and I'm not one of these people on the left who says we should not talk about this issue. Luke Trill for More in Common has just actually tweeted some uh, polling saying that this is an issue. The small boats crossing is something which a lot of people do care about. Absolutely. But what is so incredible is that the Tory party, and remember this all started with Boris Johnson, Pretty Patel. It was then obviously taken up by um, Suella Braverman and everyone's had to sort of rally around it. It is literally inventing like one of the maddest ideas you could come up with and then everyone's had to just go along with it. Well, I mean, it, it, what's so f- ridiculous about it, I and mean, I'm sure lots of our listeners just will be thinking the small boats issue is massively overhyped, with the NHS collapsing, with all these sort of economic problems, we shouldn't be worrying so much about 30,000 people coming over on dinghies. But you're right, there are lots of people who, for whom it is a very big political issue. It can't be ignored. But if you did want to deal with it, the Rwanda plan was always an incredibly stupid way of going about it. And if you look at the substantive Supreme Court judgment, rather than just sort of ranting about courts running the country or anything, what they're saying is Rwanda doesn't have a functioning immigration system, which they do not, which is correct, and has always been true and has been obvious from the start. So even if the Supreme Court has said, fine, go ahead, it can't work because there's there's no asylum system that functions in Rwanda. And they tried this thing with Israel, didn't they? Had and that, to and the that end, completely and that, that failed. Completely so failed so if well. you actually wanted to solve this problem, if you were someone who passionately believed this was a critical problem we have to solve um, above all of the other sort of priorities, the, this isn't how you do it. You do it by working closely with European allies. And they had had an agreement with the French, which has had some... Uh, some impact and with the Albanians and with the Albanians, which has you know, th- those things have actually had some some impact on on numbers this year. Um, and you would get through the backlog. And you'd process. You'd, you would. What people are upset about are people are having you know the hotels in their area full to the brim of people uh, who have been there for a year, two years with nothing to do, no jobs, uh, and that's because of the backlog. You know, you've got to deal with that. And and they've just ignored that while pursuing this completely mad policy. Yeah, yeah. And it is going to be really interesting to see how the Tory party goes forward on this, because just as we're recording this podcast now, you know, there are rumours of a number of letters of no confidence. We know that Andrea Jenkins has already put one in and we know that yes. the sort of common sense conservative group, whatever the hell they're called, are going to be gathering. So it's just going to be more and more pressure on Rishi Sunak. You do feel that the right of the party need a new cause to campaign on, even yeah. If they don't really understand well, what it is. And this, and this is, it, this is yeah. going to be it, isn't it? It's going to be the big new brexit campaign, which people will, even though they have no idea what this thing actually means, is going to be, should we leave the European Convention of Human Rights? Yeah, and I suppose, like, Senat clearly doesn't want to. James Cleverly doesn't want to. But they're going to have to somehow find a way to pretend that they might for another year and probably put something in a manifesto that hints that they could possibly do that just to, to kind of manage the right. 
and I think it will prob- that will probably work because I don't think the right of the Tory party is strong enough to actually mount a leadership challenge. But what it does show is that after the election, there's just going to be... It's oh, just gonna, we're going to be off to the wacky races. I mean, it's going to completely and collapse. the other thing that the Tories should be very grateful for is that Nigel Farage is busy eating kangaroo bum down in yes. um, Australia because if he was on the scene today, he'd yes. be absolutely kicking off. And the other thing which will be fascinating to see is whether all of this uh, you know, European Convention and human rights stuff is going to kind of push up that reform vote as well. Although, although you know, he will be on that programme talking about these issues, right, to a much bigger audience that than ever watched the news. So there is a kind of risk that um, he's uh, he's going his profile will well, get even bigger. I don't as a think he'll know about it. I don't even hear about. Oh, so I don't see this is because I don't watch celebrity oh my television. Goodness. Honestly, get, they, we're going to have to get you to they, the side. Do they not? Do they no, not? No, no, they're going to be in a bubble. They're going to be in a news bubble now, so they're not going to know anything. But he will have a big platform while he's out there. But when he comes back, he'll have an even bigger platform. Yes. So this is you know, and make no mistake, when Nigel comes back, probably having won yes. the blooming jungle thing, he will probably and he'll come back in a blaze of glory, particularly yes. on this. So issue. as entertaining as I'm sure our listeners will find it, watching him eating maggots, it's probably not good for him to be on. Um, have even more exposure than he's already had. Yeah, so it's all going really well. Yes. <laughs> oh, and then the other one thing which is also on the horizon is it's going to be quite a difficult night for Labour with um, mm. this SNP mm. vote, uh, this amendment about a, a ceasefire. Yeah, we haven't yeah. had that yet, but we're sort of hearing at the moment that you know, maybe 50 MPs are going to rebel against the whip and maybe 12, up to 12 sort of front benches are going to resign as a result or, or be fired as a result. I mean... If this was going to happen, this is the day for it to happen, I guess, because there's so much other news around. But, yeah, it's pretty awkward uh, for Starmer. And and until the until there, there is a way through in, in, in the conflict in Israel, the issue is not going to go away yeah. from him. And I think, we're, as we were saying earlier, I think the difficulty will be that at some point, you know, there will just be more and more people calling for a ceasefire. And there may come a point where the Labour Party does want to change its position to, yeah. to, to a ceasefire. They're not at that position now. They're going to be led, obviously, by what the government does and, and what, crucially, what America um, mm. is is saying. But I think a couple of weeks ago, people were like, mm, yeah, this is just going to blow over. But actually, I think this is, this no, is and, going to be and, pretty and, difficult. You know, the, the conflict in Israel is time limited. America will not let it go on forever. But there is a... You know, it could go on for quite a bit longer, and this argument isn't going away in the Labour Party. So, yeah, I, I, and, I, and I think the the reaction to the vote tonight and Starmer taking the right, the right, yeah, he has to discipline MPs who don't follow the whip, but he has to do that in a, as emollient a way as is yeah. possible uh, to avoid this continuing to blow and up. And you can see the divide. I mean, the SNP are doing this because they think it's a dividing well, they, line. They're right. I mean, and, it's good politics. Yeah, from their and, point I mean, the Lib Dems will also sort of... Nasty playing politics with this issue, but it's good yeah, politics. Yeah, the, the Lib Dems will also sort of push it as a bit of um, a wedge issue. It's also important to say as well that a lot of the people who are um, rebelling in the Labour Party are not doing it to be factional and difficult. They have deeply yeah, held absolutely. views with deep conviction and they're not bad people. It's a very, very strong view that they have. Yeah, and it, and it's exactly the type of issue where, you know, if, if you're a remotely conviction politician or have any principles, you will feel you can't go against whatever the political games that other people are playing are. So, yeah. no, you and can I think a lot of doing MPs on the Labour side are still haunted by Iraq, you know, even mm. though Tony Blair won that um, election in 2005 afterwards. Um, cast a long shadow over, over you know, mm. even backbench MPs in, in the Labour Party for, for a long time.
Another news, inflation has fallen. Uh, Rishi Sunak is very pleased. He's saying that he's now hit his target of halving inflation. We're also starting to look ahead, not just with the dramatic politics of this week, but looking forward to next week, a really important event, the autumn statement. And, and we're going to use this episode to, again, revisit the issue of, of economics. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about what the government's planning, but also we're going to focus on Labour's economic and industrial strategy. Now, Rachel Reeves has said that a modern state must be more active, making and shaping markets that are essential to a nation's resilience and future prosperity. But Sam, what do you think that actually means? And is she right? I mean, where do you think Labour is at the moment? It's a good question. I mean, I think basically Labour are in a position where they don't want to commit to more spending and they don't want to commit to higher taxes. We're going to discuss in this episode whether that's a realistic position, but pre-election, that's where they want to be. So in terms of economics, what does that what does that mean? You have to say we're going to try and create much more rapid growth than we've seen in the last five, 10, 15 years in the UK. And you've got to look like you have a convincing strategy for for, for creating that growth, because otherwise uh, the sort of position on, on tax and spending looks completely ridiculous. And you know, how do you differentiate? yourself from the government who also of course say they want economic growth one way is to is to say that you're going to take a more active role as a state in steering the economy now industrial strategy has a kind of negative reputation sort of picking winners tony ben in the 1970s trying to find um, telecoms companies and, and 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 so on that then failed and british leyland and all of that and just coming that when i worked uh, for patricia hewitt at the department of trade and industry um her big mission was to roll back from that. I remember yeah. I remember the new industrial strategy at that point that the DTI published was that this government is not mm. going to pick winners. And we haven't really had an industrial strategy since since the Thatcher era. Since then, the Treasury has dominated. The Department of Trade and Industry, or whatever it's called, business, it changes its name every five minutes, has been you know put in its box uh, and told to be quiet. But I don't think what Reid is talking about is a kind of that going back to that and saying we're going to pick individual companies to invest in. I think what she's saying is there are sectors of the economy that are shaped by government, particularly on on green transition and net zero, where the government investment can unlock a very significant amount of private investment if you do it in the right way. Which is what's happening in America. With the right symbols, with, with, with the right signals in a stable kind of policy environment. And I think most economists would agree with that. I think a lot of people around the government would would agree with that. But it's just quite a lot harder to do that than to say it. That has been the policy that's being pursued in America to a lesser extent in the EU. Part of our problem is we just have far, far less money to invest than the Americans do, or even the EU does. So can can we realistically sort of create, turn the UK into a sort of hub of the green economy when we've got so much less money around to, to do it with? So those are the kind of challenges she's going to face. But I think in terms of an economic growth policy, most people would agree that you should at least try and do something like this. Joining us to discuss Labour's plan to shape the economy, we have someone who is Gordon Brown's chief economist at the Cabinet Office, Jonathan Portes. Hello, Jonathan. Good afternoon. And we're also delighted to be joined by the chief economist at the Institute for Government, Gemma Tetlow. Hello, Gemma. Hello. Gemma, let's start with you with some macroeconomic questions. We are heading into the autumn statement next week. What's the general outlook for the UK economy right now? The general outlook is pretty weak. Um, actually, this year, the economy's done rather better than many people thought it was going to back earlier in the year. So 
when the Office of Budget Responsibility, the official forecaster, published its last forecast in March, they were actually expecting a small contraction of the economy this year and then stronger growth next year. Things have done better this year, so probably more like half a percent growth this year. But looking forward to next year, most people are now a little bit more pessimistic about what it's going to look like. And certainly the Bank of England, who have always been on the more pessimistic end in, in recent months, um, think that the economy is going to be very sluggish in terms of growth for the next several years. In terms of the um, autumn statement, which is coming next week, what are you expecting to see Jeremy Hunt do at that? So one thing that will shape whatever he does is what's happened to the economic and fiscal forecasts and whether that gives him any more headroom in the jargon Mm. against his fiscal targets. So what's happened to those forecasts? Has it given him any more money to play with, essentially? A few things that I'll be looking out for. One is, have things got a bit better and how do they decide to respond to that? Um, In the last decade or so, governments, when they've got good news, have tended to give away quite a lot of that good news in higher spending or tax cuts. The other thing is that we're going to get one extra year of plans from the government. So the Office of Budget Responsibility will include figures for 2028. And what that means is we'll also find out a bit more about the government's public spending plans. So we have detailed spending plans set out through to March 2025. Um, We then have sort of pencilled in plans beyond that, which at the moment suggest a very tight uh, spending for public services from April 2025 onwards. We'll find out from Jeremy Hunt what he plans to do in that extra year beyond that. And if they, again, pencil in very tight plans, that will give them more money to play with in terms of potentially tax cuts, but obviously does mean a further difficult decisions about how you actually meet public services. Jonathan, I want to bring you in on this point in terms of the way, when we talk about headroom, I think this is sort of quite a confusing concept to a lot of people, even those who follow the news quite closely, and that it sort of gives the impression there's actually a sort of pot of money sitting around. It's not, can you explain uh, what we mean when we talk about headroom in this context? So the Office of Budget Responsibility projects what tax revenues will be and what spending will be over the forecast period. And it then compares that with the government's own fiscal targets, which, as Gemma said, are to balance the current budget, um, but also to get debt down as a share of GDP um, at the end of the forecast period. And so the difference between what the government's plans imply, according to the OBR, um, and uh, what their targets imply they have to, to hit is that headroom. The problem is the OBR can only forecast on the basis of what the government says it's going to do, even if what it says it's going to do isn't entirely plausible or indeed consistent with previous practice. So the whole thing, frankly, has become a bit of a charade. And that, you know, there's always been this tension, but it's particularly the case now when some of the government's tax and spending plans are clearly just not in, just not reality based. And Jonathan, What are the politics that you expect to come out of the autumn statement next week? Because, of course, it's been a very, very big week for Rishi Sunak. Surely they're going to want to pitch roll for uh, some austerity to pave the way for those much wanted tax cuts. Um, I think there is a choice for Hunt and Sunak. They can choose to say, regardless of the election coming up, our brand is 
fiscal conservatism, prudence, long-term economic thinking. We are not going to do what, frankly, from an economic perspective would be silly giveaways on tax cuts. Instead, we're going to try and um, be responsible, um, maintain a margin for error, put forward realistic plans, and I would hope um, address some of the really stupid things about the tax system that a genuinely small-c conservative government would do. The alternative, of course, is to say, actually, we're not going to be in power for beyond uh, next year. Let's pretend that we're going to cut spending by imaginary efficiencies in the NHS or whatever by 2% a year, and that will magic up money according to this bizarre accounting system, which has no correspondence with reality, that will magic up some money with which we can promise tax cuts. So it could genuinely go either way, in my view. I just want to come to Gemma on the sort of point about the OBR and the headroom. And so it feels like we sort of ended up with a slightly Alice in Wonderland style system where the government are theoretically constrained by a set of forecasts that they are increasingly inventive in gaming in different ways. What should, assuming Labour win the election, what should they be thinking about in terms of how to improve the kind of fiscal framework for making these decisions. So you, you, you and we're not in this situation where we're playing so many games in the run-up to an autumn statement. I think there are several things that are undesirable about how things are working at the moment. Taking the specific fiscal rules themselves, we've talked about the, the rule that's most binding at the moment, which is this target to have debt falling as a share of national income between two specific years. Mm. And there are several things that are problematic about that rule, and I think it would be better to change them. One is that because it's between two specific years, you can do quite a lot of gaming around the margins to mm. make that easier. So there are silly things like, actually, if you do more borrowing in the short term, it makes it easier to meet that rule just mechanically mm. because the numbers... Because then it will start, come down. Yeah. Then it starts coming down. Mm. Or because you're targeting a particular type of measure of debt in a particular year, things like there are certain types of government assets that you could sell off and you could actually mm. sell them off for less than they're worth. But in the accounting terms, that still benefits you and helps you to get debt falling in that particular year. So there are there are particular features of the, exist, the current rules that would be better changed. But I think I would put my focus for Labour more on thinking about wider changes to the framework and the way that policy operates within that. Because we've talked a lot about the forecast might change, that might increase or decrease the headroom that government has, and that's going to shape what the Chancellor mm. then announces. And that is what has happened in recent years. But actually, if you think about the the point of having fiscal rules, the mm. sort of underlying purpose is to ensure that government policy over the longer term is on a fiscally sustainable path. To do that and to help the government make decisions, you need some kind of forecast about what's likely to happen in the future to help them understand what's possible. But actually, forecasts do move. They are uncertain. The average forecasting error one year out on the public finances on, on borrowing is something like £10 billion. That's a lot of money and can easily mm. move that much in either direction. And you actually ideally don't want government policy changing every six months in response to forecasting changes mm. that then in six months' time may go back the other way and you have to mm. make the reverse decisions. So I think ideally we would move to a position where, firstly, we don't have so many fiscal announcements and it's 
good to see that Labour so far have said that they would have just one fiscal event a year. So avoiding this pressure to fill the airtime by announcing new things every six months, but also try and get away a bit from reacting to every single mm. adjustment in the forecast and instead have something more Because if you believe the Sunday Times, I, about sort of a month ago, Jeremy Hunt was being told he was going to have a £19 billion black hole and now he's got a sort of £10 billion that he can use. And it's sort of even within a very short window in which he's trying to think about policy, he, he, the numbers are bouncing around a load of places. It's, it's an imp almost impossible situation in which to make sort of sustainable long-term policy. Exactly. Let's now have a bit more of a look at Labour. Jonathan, I'll just start with you. In terms of the autumn statement next week, you've, you've set out the, the choices that, that Sunak and, and Hunt have. There's also an expectation that what the Tories love to do is set these sort of bear traps for the Labour Party. So let's say they do take the option, which we probably don't think is a sensible option, but they say, yes, we're going to start sort of trimming public spending and pave the way for tax cuts. How do you think Labour should, should respond to that? from any sort of point of intellectual, political and economic consistency, it would be crazy for Labour to sign up to any tax cuts that were announced this week that weren't sort of in line with Labour's long-term strategy anyway. So for, if, for example, Hunt announces extension of the provisions in the corporation tax system that effectively incentivize investment, I think that's actually broadly consistent with with what Labour would want to do anyway, there is no reason for Labour not to say, actually, that is a perfectly sensible thing. And and from the point of view of long-term stability, we should actually say now, yes, we are going to commit to keeping that and companies can rest assured that we're not going to be doing more chopping and changing. On the other hand, if uh, what they announce is some sort of cut to inheritance tax or whatever, I think it would be mad for Labour and wrong, as I say, both from a economic and a intellectual consistency point of view to saying, you know, anything other than this is a crazy way to allocate resources and we would not implement it and we would reverse it and make that clear ex ante right, right away. Coming back to the sort of broader picture, the demographic and economic pressures um, on public spending um, for the next 5, 10, 20 years are very, very significant. The point which I keep on making is the government announced an NHS workforce plan uh, a couple of months ago, um, which um, committed, which, which effectively expands the NHS workforce from the current level of about 1.4 million to 2.3 million. Labour's response to that was to say, well, that was our idea in the first place, right? So there's this cross-cardy consensus on that. An expansion of 900,000 people in the NHS workforce implies almost arithmetically an expansion in NHS spending of a couple of percent of GDP. About £50 billion. Pounds, yes, like that, yeah. that's a huge, you know. So the idea that we should be talking about tax cuts in aggregate now is just inconsistent with what both parties are pledged to do. Now, there's lots of things one should be thinking about, NHS reform, improving productivity, better use of data, better management, artificial intelligence, whatever. But... None of those things come free and none of that. You don't certainly say, well, we're going to save money by doing those things and therefore it's available for tax cuts. That's just not the way government works. And this, the, the way, looking at the purely at the politics, it does feel like an inheritance tax cut is the place you'd go if you're purely thinking from a conservative point of view about saving as many seats as possible, just because it doesn't actually raise that much money compared to other taxes. So you can cut it by a lot. 
without spending too much uh, and give the appearance of something much more dramatic. Sort of getting rid of the whole thing is about one p off income tax or something. So, uh, and the reason for that is because hardly anyone pays it; only the richest estates pay it. So, just in terms of presentation, you can see why you'd end up there. But you know, I agree with you that it would be a, a sort of a waste of money. But it could put Labour in a in a tricky in a tricky spot. And just to sort of follow on from that, I mean, let's just take a, a kind of a wider look at. Um, where Labour is, particularly because, you know, Rachel Reeves is doing really well at the moment. She's had a great conference. Businesses are flocking to the the Labour Party for the first time. You know, the the Labour Party is seen like it could be trusted on the economy. Yet people are so nervous about the fact that Labour is very much sticking to its new spending message, Jonathan. And yet if Labour wins and the polls are looking good for Labour, it's going to inherit this massive big mess. It wants to change Britain for the better. That's what this podcast is all about. How does Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves do that and not spend any more? Well, I think the strategy is... Whether it's deliverable is less clear. The strategy, almost by definition, must be based around you know, what I think is a, a perfectly reasonable logical argument, which is that a lot of the UK's longer-term structural economic problems, and remember, stepping back from the cost of living crisis and inflation, which actually are mostly global anyway, we're not doing that much worse than other European countries. But stepping back from that, the big problem is that we've had 15 years of pretty miserable growth, both in GDP and even more so in in wages and and what people perceive as their living standards. So that's the big problem. And I think Labour's analysis, which is shared, I think, by economists across the spectrum, that this has a lot to do with underinvestment, public investment, but also, and perhaps even more importantly, private investment. And so I think just as a matter of logic, what's Labour's answer? Labour's answer is, you know, we need to raise the levels of business investment in the UK. And to do that, we need to use the power of the state to shape markets, make markets, to lever in private investment, to give stability and certainty, um, to give incentives for investment that are there not just for a year or two years, but for five or 10 years. And I think all that, actually, that is a reasonably coherent philosophy or you know, both a reasonably coherent analysis of how we got into this mess and a reasonably coherent analysis about how we might get out of it. Um, so that's the good I can, part. I can see a butt coming. Well, <laughs> the, butt coming. Co- the butt coming is that it's really difficult. There are going to be all these huge pressures for public spending because public services are a mess. And with the election of Labour government, large parts of the Labour Party, and more importantly, very large parts of the public are going to think, well, things must get better. And if they don't get better, why, you know, what, what was the point of this if they don't get better? So there are going to be those pressures. The second point is that delivering that consistency, stability and incentives to business, you don't do it in six months. It's actually slow, patient delivery and implementation over a period of years where you show that you are a competent government, you have a set of policies and we're going to stick to them and we're not going to continually chop change in response to political pressures, events and all the rest of it. And UK politics over the last few years has been really, really, really bad at that. And so you take decisions like HS2 and the electric vehicles thing, both cases where arguably from an economic point of view, there are perfectly good arguments on both sides. HS2, there are good 
economists on both sides of the argument about whether it was a good idea in the first place. What there can't possibly be an argument for is the way that policy has actually been made and played out in terms of the sort of chopping and changing, which clearly is bad for business investment. And so I think what Labour are doing right is saying, we're not going to do that in future. So this but is the sort of, time this to- is the securonomics message. It's quite difficult for Labour to guarantee that because for some things, we are at the mercy of geopolitical events. You know, let's say there is a, another conflict that let's say that the Middle East conflict starts to sort of um, affect oil supply. Even though... Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer may say, right, we're, we want to deliver you calm and, and security and, and stability. Some of that might be out with their control, Jonathan. That's right. Yet another threat. As I say, I think the, stra- the analysis and the strategy are coherent. Actually delivering it is really going to be uh, very difficult. Uh, um, you know, they, they've set themselves a, a, a very difficult challenge. Um, just to follow up on that, Gemma, I want to ask you a kind of impossible question, um, which is... How much can domestic policy really affect growth anyway? I mean, when you look around the world, certainly look around Europe, growth rates have, have been pretty poor across most of Europe, not quite as poor as in, in, is in Britain. And every country is pursuing different policies with different stripes of government sort of seem to end up in roughly the same place. Does it even matter anymore, given how interconnected the world is, what Labour's policy platform is, when we're talking about large changes in, in GDP? Broadly, I think you're right. We need to be realistic about how much government policy is really going to radically change our growth outlook. Having said that, I think there are areas, as Jonathan has outlined, where we've had a lot of chopping and changing of policy and messaging and direction in recent years, where, and particularly around some of the policy areas that we might think are the most likely to have an impact. So things like adult skills policy in the UK has been constant, subject to constant churn over past decades. Regional economic growth approaches, the various different institutions and pots of money and have also been one of the areas that's been most in churn. We've had a lot of different industrial strategies being renamed and there's been some policy continuity, some not, some shifting of who's overseeing those things. So you could certainly have more stability in those areas and that must go some way towards providing a stable a platform for the private sector to make decisions on. Things like the green energy transition, home insulation, education, those sorts of things where actually the government is quite a large part of determining what the demand for those things is. If we can have greater clarity for the private sector about what's likely to be needed in future that then gives them the confidence to invest in the supply chain needed to bring that online. Uh, Yes, I agree. And um, I mean, I think brief plug here, we at UK and in Changing Europe are are putting together a a report on economic challenges and starting with a sort of SWOT analysis of the UK. I think that trying to write the opportunity section, the sort of biggest opportunity is in a sense a negative one. It's that we've done so badly over the last 10 or 15 years (laughs) that we're now quite behind the sort of technological and economic possibility frontier in a lot of respects. Um, and that means that there are a lot of thing, things, areas where we could make a lot of progress just by getting ourselves up to averagely good rather than having to make some sort of great quantum leap uh, uh, ahead of everybody. If we can just get our performance across a number of areas. Like what up, kind of things? 
Um, so, for example, just building infrastructure, just you know, building infrastructure more quickly um, and more cheaply um, would go a long way. Reducing the cost of housing in high cost areas, measures that would improve the performance of the long tail of, of not particularly efficient small and medium sized enterprises. And so take your point about just cracking on with, with housing. I mm. mean, we, we had a really interesting discussion about housing. We've also had a really interesting episode about local government as well. And, and a council leader did say to us, they absolutely want to be able to do that, but they also want to be able to borrow more to do that as well. How do you think Rachel Reeve should sort of navigate that? Um, I think it would be, it's incredibly short-sighted not to. I mean, I... Another thing that sort of occurred to me while trying to write, uh, uh, you know, in in the W section of the SWOT analysis, is it, so we have this sort of bizarre position where the UK is generally agreed to be considerably over centralized in terms of governance, and particularly in terms of fiscal governance, in terms of the amount, the extent to which councils are reliant on, on central government funding, and to the extent to which your councils are constrained in how much they can borrow and what they... So in that sense, er, and everyone agrees, we're, we're over-centralized. And yet at the same time, everyone also agrees that there's far too much nimbyism and that the sort of local veto over development, particularly housing, um, is far too strong. So we have this sort of paradox of over-centralization damaging us at the same time as nimbyism and localism is also damaging us. And how do you get around that? I, you know, I don't have the answers, but it must have something to do with some sort of grand bargain around giving greater local autonomy and greater freedoms um, in exchange for finding a way of incentivizing local areas to build and develop. Gemma, what do you think about that? I mean, I think it's probably worth distinguishing two different possible aspects of more devolved fiscal responsibility. One is allowing actually new tax raising, which is one possibility. But I think the other potential aspect of more fiscal power for areas is actually just giving them more control over how they spend the money that they already receive from central government. And in particular, in recent years, we've seen a proliferation of lots of competitive funding pots held by the centre of government that local government has to bid into and they get a specific amount of money for a specific project in their area. But that's then ring-fenced and they may have several of these different pots which are all separately ring-fenced within their budgets. So there's something more you could potentially do even without giving more tax-raising power that would give local areas more say over how they spend their budgets if you allowed them more flexibility to decide how to I've been trying money. to count how many pots there are <laughs> I've got to about 450 and yeah. I, that's not that isn't everything yet the, yeah. because there's no list of them either there's no you know, it's just an insane number of um, little pots of money which is makes it impossible to to run local government effectively I, I, I sort of you know, we've got so many. There's so many problems. There's so many challenges. Labour are trying to, you know, to get anywhere. They're going to have to do so many, so many different big political, get so many big political wins. There's geopolitical threats, etc. What happens if if they're not successful? Let's look five years ahead into the future. Growth hasn't improved. We're still sort of plodding along at this kind of stagnation level. What breaks first in the system? You know, politicians don't want to raise taxes. They don't want to cut spending. They don't want to borrow more money. Something has to give, right? If you don't don't grow the economy. So, where do we end up if that doesn't happen? So we're going to be let's be really pessimistic for a bit. Gosh, that's very pessimistic. <laughs> um, we haven't yet seen the political debate 
get to the crunch of really deciding what our priorities are. And I think we've we've sort of alluded to the fact that there are some tight spending plans penciled in. I mean, mm. to put it more bluntly, the, the spending numbers that are in the forecast beyond the election look totally implausible mm-hmm. in terms of actually Happening. continuing to run our services the way that we are used to. So I think we haven't yet seen politics have that discussion with the public about actually if we want to keep taxes where they are we can't afford the scope and quality of services we've been offering in the past what are our priorities because mm. in a sense in previous decades we've managed to make more money available for the NHS by for example after post cold war managing to scale back the army um in other periods we've benefited from rapidly falling debt interest costs which has freed up more money to put into the kind of public services that people like it's not obvious over the next decade or so, the thing that's going to shrink, that's going to allow us to spend more money elsewhere. So I think possibly even not quite in the worst world that you're Mm. painting, but certainly in the worst world you're painting, I think we would have to have a much more crunchy public discussion Mm. about what are our priorities? Are we willing to countenance charging for certain services that at the moment are free? as a way of mm. meaning we can provide other service to other people? Or do we think the state should focus its efforts on one area and not another? And Jonathan, I mean, this leads on to the difficulties about trying to have an honest conversation with people about the reality of where things are. Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves have sort of set out these missions and one of their missions is to secure the highest sustained growth in the, the G7 Now, I've spoken to a lot of commentators, a lot of economists. Nobody actually quite knows how it's going to happen, particularly when Labour have also been really, really clear saying we're not going to be obviously going back into Europe. We're not going to be rejoining the single market or the customs union. Keir Starm has also said, you know, to kind of track where the Tories are on immigration, I'm not going to reach for the lever of cheap immigration to fill the skills gap. So with all these constraints that Labour have put on themselves, how realistic is it that they can get this highest sustained growth? How are they going to do it, Jonathan, being honest? Um, I mean, I think being honest, it's really just a slogan, right? Frankly, if a Labour government managed to average 3% growth over its period in office, it will be a triumph. Everyone will be very happy. And if the Canadians grow at 3.5%, no one will give a damn, right? It'll still be a triumph. (laughs) Um, The basic point is they want to increase growth. And if they increase growth, that will um, have all sorts of benefits. So I think the sort of the G7 thing is is slightly a sort of red herring that economists aren't particularly worried about. The substantive point of your question is, well, what, what are the levers? And I think the one key lever, as I discussed before, is business investment and, and getting that up. And I think that would have a positive impact on growth. We are lucky in that the big areas of growth in the global economy over the next 10, 15, 20 years are going to be in high productivity, tradable services. Things like not just finance, but business services, consultancy, accountancy, et cetera, et cetera, uh, advertising, creative sectors. And we are well positioned in a number of respects. We speak English. 
We have London. We have a reasonably open and flexible immigration system. We have a great university system, which is both a sector in itself, a very large, high productivity, tradable sector, and one which is also symbiotic with and a sort of base requirement for all these other high productivity sectors. That is where the growth is going to come from if the various enablers, business investment, being able to build labs and offices and uh, and houses for people to live in, in London, the South East, Oxford and Cambridge, if we can get all of those right, the UK is not doomed to failure by its sort of basic economic structure or its geography. Um, its politicians can, can doom it to failure if they want. The downside risk, it seems to me, is not the sort of sudden, sudden collapse. It's what's happened to Italy for the past 25 years, right? Italy hasn't collapsed, but it has had essentially zero growth for a quarter of a century. Um, and that is because of a toxic combination of you know, economic barriers leading to low growth, leading to a set of politicians who are in hoc to vested interests who keep those economic barriers. And then you end up with the far right in charge, which is and the which Ultimately, is the you worry, end up yeah. with the far right in charge. But but in some sense, that is a product of the failure of the mm. sort of centrist politicians of the last 20 mm. years. So, Jonathan, you worked very closely with Gordon Brown. Do you see the ghost of Gordon Brown in, in Rachel Reeves. I mean, she's been praised by lots of other former chancellors, including George Osborne. What do you kind of, who do you think she is and she sort of takes influence from? Um, well, I certainly think in terms of the sort of focus and determination, she's clearly taking something from uh, from Gordon. On the other hand, as far as I can tell, the intention between her and Starmer is to try and replicate the Cameron Osborne relationship rather than the Blair Brown relationship. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, regardless of politics, there's no doubt that the Cameron Osborne relationship, in terms of running a government, uh, worked considerably better <laughs> than the uh, Brown Blair relationship. Even if you think, as I do, that Brown was a far, far better. Chancellor and policymaker than than Osborne was. Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose the question is, you know, if Reeves does find herself as Chancellor, is she going to sort of accept that actually the spending picture is much bleaker than anyone's saying it is now, and go against some of this sort of Iron Chancellor shtick that she's going for at the moment, and actually do some quite conventional Labour policymaking in terms of tax and spend? We did an event with Rachel Reeves recently in which there were a lot of her fellow shadow cabinet colleagues in the audience. And even in that environment, she was very clear on the fiscal discipline line. So I, I took away from that that this is not just, it's not just a line for the public. Uh, this it's is not something, just for Christmas. It's mm. not just for Christmas. This is something that she really does mm. believe in. So at the moment, the current government has penciled in some very tight, implausibly tight spending numbers, which help to make the borrowing numbers add up after the election. Labour can either go along with those and say that they would stick to them. And that's what Gordon Brown and Tony Blair did pre-97. They said they would go along with the Tory spending plans at the time. Or they can choose to make an election pitch that says we would spend more and this is what you would get for it. This is much more politics than economics, so I mm. don't trust my <laughs> judgment on this. But I think that that I can see is politically risky because it opens up all of the lines of attack from the mm. conservative side saying you can't trust Labour with the public finances. 
they've yeah. got all these ambitions on spending. They that said would mean higher taxes. They've they surely just put up a picture of Liz Truss when they say that. <laughs> I mean, they're just like, I do feel like Labour... I agree with that. I, I mean, I think, yes, they'll stick to the fiscal discipline. They will do what they've done so far, which is to have specific, relatively micro tax changes matched with specific, quite micro spending pledges. And that's all that will happen before the election. For me, the interesting question is what happens after the, you know, if they win after the election as these pressures, how do you respond? And there's sort of two ways you can respond. One is to sort of the incrementalist, which is to push the boundaries, both of the rules by the sort of, again, more gaming of the OBR, uh, some, you know, stealth taxes and all the rest of it, or because it's such a bad crunch, are you actually forced into being genuinely radical on aspects of either ta- reforming the tax system in a big way um, or making major changes to how we spend our money. Um, and unsurprisingly, I hope they will confront the latter and say, actually, more of the same incrementalism is not an option. We need to make some rather big changes to tax and spending. And that requires really, you know, it doesn't mean you abandon the fiscal discipline. It just says, actually, we need to really change the way that we raise taxes in this country and how we allocate the spending that we get from those taxes. And I hope that they would do that. And of course, there are lots of reports from IFG, the Resolution Foundation, LSE, and so on, on what you could do. There's plenty of plenty of ideas out there. Um, but it really is um, you know, I don't think politicians will do it until they're actually forced to. But uh, I, I hope that they will be. You know, we have a, examples of that in the past, right? The Pensions Commission, which I just wrote an article about, um, uh, came about because um, the whole system was heading for a un, you know a crunch and a crash, um, and the government, a very much against Gordon Brown's will, was forced to say, actually, we really need to you know, something radical. And it set up, you know, it came up with genuinely radical proposals, which were actually delivered. So it can be done. Interesting, but it may take a crisis and on, to get well, there. On that positive note, minorly positive <laughs> note, we will, we will finish. Thank you so much for that um, discussion, Gemma and Jonathan. So I think Jonathan wrapped up, uh, that up very well for us at the end, which is essentially that what we're looking at is Labour having to accept that the consequences of uh, 15 years of, of low growth, which they are not responsible for, they weren't in government for, but nevertheless, they're going to have to deal with the consequences of. And at some point, they are going to have to either keep trying to game play and push the boat out as long as they can. But at some point, there is going to be a crunch and a government is going to have to level with the British people that the economy is in a bad way, that... Uh, either taxes are going to go up or spending is going to have to go down considerably, which no one wants to say at the moment pre-election. The question is whether they're going to, you know, whether they're ready to do that, I think, whether they have the the internal coherence or the willingness to to, to do that quickly rather than to be dragged into it over you know, two or three years. Well, so much of that will depend on what happens, really. I mean, how much can domestic policy really shape all of this stuff and deliver quick outcomes when we are at the mercy of, of so much geopolitics. And and, and I think the, the thing is, we've got no room for manoeuvre anymore. You know, you go back to sort of 2008 when we had the financial crash, the economy was in a pretty good place at that point. 
Now, our debt was, pretty in a, was, was, it was a historic low. Our tax burden had been rising a little bit, but was, was, not, was not particularly high, etc. We could cope with the crisis, and we did. You know, on top of that, you've had Brexit, you've had COVID, you've had Ukraine, you've had inflation, cost of living. We, we can't cope with any more crises. It feels like such a difficult position to be in where if anything else goes wrong, we're, we're, we've sort of got no room left yeah, in which to manage real, that There's crisis. a sense of real fragility. It's incredibly fragile now. And that means even, as you say, even if you do broadly the right things, you might have to accept that's just not going to be radical enough. Yeah. And at some point, you're going to have to do something much more dramatic than anyone is talking about at the moment uh, in ter- in, from either of the political parties. And sadly, it may take... A crisis. It may take yet another crisis to kick that off. I'm just kind of hoping that Labour don't wait for that. I'm not optimistic that they won't wait for that, but I'm hoping that they use uh, an election where you know they they probably will get a decent majority and, and and they can blame the outgoing government for an awful lot of what's gone wrong to be a bit more radical than they. Mm. You know, the mo- I get why they want to appear sensible at the moment, but sensible might not actually be yeah. the way through this. Well, I mean, Keir Starmer has said himself that you know. The, we can't carry on with the sticking plaster politics. Yeah. We've got to take these kind of long-term decisions, these structural um, decisions. But let's just hope that actually happens. Ah. <laughs> ah. We're not feeling hugely optimistic in the studio. This week, wasn't it? Well, on that cheery note, <laughs> thank you so much for listening. And remember, if you're not a member, you can subscribe to our wonderful Substack for ad-free episodes released a day early. And if you've got any thoughts or questions, do tweet us at the paratest or email pod at theparatest.co.uk and we'll be back next week joined by the former advisor to tony blair sally morgan and the director of the institute for government hannah white to talk about transition into government so we will see you then mm-hmm.